Welcome to the Navigating Cancer Together podcast. My name is Talaya Dindi. I am a 10-year cancer thriver, cancer doula, and owner of On the Other Side. I use my experience to help others get on the other side of cancer. This podcast is about sharing stories, resources, and information about all things related to cancer and wellness. I interview guests from all walks of life who are living with cancer, caregivers, and those who made it on the other side. Also, I talk with organizations, healthcare professionals, and experts in the health and wellness spaces who offer complimentary and integrative care. Join me. We are in this together. Hello, and welcome to Navigating Cancer Together. I am your host, Talea Dendi. Today, we have a very special guest with us, and her name is Dr. Carlene Crevacor. She has a very interesting story to share with you, and I know that it will inspire you as well. Dr. Carlene Crevacor is a Haitian-American retired board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist. Dr. Crevacor attended St. John's University as an undergraduate, earning a bachelor's degree in chemistry. She received her medical degree from Downstate Medical School. Her medical concentration was in perinatology, where she researched lung development in premature infants. She also worked extensively with breast cancer patients and victims of sexual violence. After 20 years of medical service in New York and Pennsylvania, Dr. Crevacor gave up her career to raise and homeschool her five children. Although she planned to return to her beloved profession after her children were grown, a cancer diagnosis in 2012 sidelined her plans and forced her to retire. Dr. Crevacor is a two-time cancer survivor. She has also volunteered on education boards and sponsored public health programs. She is the first Black woman elected for a seat on the SCASD school board, and she has written a memoir called Pressure Makes Diamonds. Thank you so much for being here with us today and taking the time to share your story. Hi, Carlene. Welcome to the show. It is such a pleasure to have you today. And I can't wait for the audience to hear all about, you know, the work that you that you do, your family and your story. I think that it is so important. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Talia. I'm excited about it. Thank you. I, I can't wait to dive in. And so um, would you like me to call you Carlene or Dr. Carlene? Do you have a preference? I do not. Whatever is more okay. comfortable with you, that's fine. I think your audience will know that I'm a doctor. Okay. <laughs> so that's okay. okay. All right. Thank you. Dr. Carlene, um, how did you learn that you had stage four colon cancer? Actually, I had stage three first, and okay. then two years later, I had stage four. So, um, and to be honest with you, I was not 50 years old yet. I had just turned 49. Um, I was busy with the kids. There was like a soccer game going on. And then I came home, I think with them. And so my husband was on call. He's an anesthesiologist. 
And um, so I just kind of went to the bathroom and there was like this really faint reddish thing um, that I saw in the tissue. So Mm -hmm. it just so happened. And that was really luck. It just so happened that my husband called a few seconds later and I said, you know, the weirdest thing, you know, you know, I'm, I wasn't constipated or anything else. And I, there was some blood on the tissue. And then he says, oh, well, you know what? I'm in the, I'm in the hospital now. I'm looking at the schedule for the endoscopy mm-hmm. for, and the schedule is really life for next week. And it was over the weekend. I think it was like on a Saturday. And so he was on call and he says, why don't I put you on the schedule for Monday? I'll speak to my friend who's the GI doctor because he's in today. I'll just speak to him and see if they could put you on the schedule. You'll just do your prep over the weekend. And I was like, oh God, this is overkill. Do I really have to do this? I mean, it's probably just hemorrhoid. I was, Mm -hmm. I just didn't really want to do it. And he kept pushing me. He said, you're going to be 50 next year. Just get it over with and we'll know exactly what's going on. And so I said, okay, fine. And, you know, and I didn't have a repeat of blood tinge or anything doing that whole prep for the whole weekend. So Mm -hmm. I was really thinking, oh, this is overkill. I have a lot of things to do in the Monday, you know, now I'm going to go for a colonoscopy. And, you know, the doctor was nice enough to put me on schedule first thing. Yes. And then by Wednesday, um, I knew that I had cancer. He saw a mass and he kind of downplayed it. He was like, there's a mass. And I said, what is it? And Mm -hmm. he said, well, you know, we don't know. We we don't know. We don't want to guess right now. Let's just wait for the pathology results. You know, I took a biopsy and we'll see. And okay. it was like three centimeters and I, I was fine. I felt fine. So I said, I was just a benign, you know, I just mm-hmm. would not, I could not even entertain the idea that I had cancer. No one else in my family, my mom had breast cancer and my father had prostate, but they were like menopausal. Mm-hmm. I never entertained that at that age, I would have cancer. And so I put it out of my head. But by Wednesday, um, my husband told me that the results were positive and that I had cancer. And then that following Monday, I had mm-hmm. my surgery. So yeah. So, you know, as far as the disparity in cancer treatment and in healthcare mm-hmm. issues, that could have been me if I didn't have contact. And yes. that really is what saved my life. And um, this is just as an aside, but it was just that my husband's hospital are postponing endoscopy because of COVID. Yes, yes. And this, when I heard that, I was devastated. It's sad. Because... Someone like me that I didn't want to go in the first place. I wasn't mm-hmm. 50 yet. I could have just said, well, you know what? They're postponing it. When they start again, I'll go, you know, and not yeah. think anything about it. And I would have been stage four or whatever. It would have been, you know, so advanced. Yes. So I really, I don't like hearing that. You know, people are saying, you know, like, it's not a big deal, but it is. It is. People like us that have gone through this. We know that that endoscopy that colonoscopy saved our lives. Yeah, it, it's so important. And I am really just afraid to see and read the statistics like three to five years from now, when people that have put off their screenings, they go in and they get these diagnoses that are terminal or, you know, and they could have caught it earlier, Yes, you know, and it's just 
it's just scary to me and it's heartbreaking to think about all the people that are going to be impacted by this. Um, And I I just don't think it's right. Um, And that's why we got to keep pushing and getting this information out there so people understand how critical this is. Uh, Because a lot of people are dying that don't really have to. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I would tell your viewers, you know, we're going to get to my stage four because that was devastating. The yes. whole cancer thing was devastating. Even afterwards, when I went to speak to the doctor about my diagnosis, my cancer and everything else and treatment options, the whole time that he was speaking to my husband, myself, I was felt I was outside of myself. Like mm-hmm. I, I it wasn't real. It didn't feel real. It's like, this can't be happening. I'm the doctor. I treat patients. I have the scalpel. I do the surgeries. It's not supposed to happen to me. You know, it just, so that whole time, it, it just felt something that was surreal. Mm-hmm. Um, that I was just participating in. I was asking the revel, rev, you know, revelant question because the, as a doctor, you know, I know the questions that you should ask, Mm -hmm. but I still didn't think it was happening to me. I felt like Mm -hmm. I was talking about another patient. I was talking to the doctor about a colleague and how we manage it. It just didn't seem real until the day of the surgery. I mean, I just Mm -hmm. couldn't wrap myself around it. I bet. I can only imagine because just hearing those words, it that is in itself hard to grasp and try to make sense out of. But when you're the doctor and you're seeing these things every day, I can have an idea of all the different things that have been, could have been going through your mind. Like, did, did you say, well, how did this happen to me? Or how did I get here? Like, did you have any of those questions? Uh, I was... Okay. I, it was like, this is the situation. How do we deal with it? Mm -hmm. Because how did I get, I got here. Doesn't matter right now. We need to deal with this. It was more strategic, you know, and again, planning, like it wasn't, I'm the doctor. I got this diagnosis. Let's deal with it. Let's move on. Let's do the surgery. And I'm going to beat this thing. And that's it. And I could go back to my life. You know, this is a temporary interruption and it's not going to, stop me from everything else that I need to do. Mm-hmm. And in that aspect, I don't think I was really giving it its due. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really processing it the way I should, because yes. I was so used to doing things on my own and having control of things that I felt I could control this mm-hmm. cancer also. And that first time was shocking, but I did it. The second time was devastated when I came, it came back in two years and I was a stage four, that was devastating. Wow. So may I ask what treatment um, you were given for the stage three? And then if you don't mind, let's progress into the next stage four. Okay. So I was on a 12 weeks, every other um, week treatment. And it was cisplatin, forget the second one, and um, MFU. And Mm -hmm. that was the one that I got overnight with the visiting nurse. Mm -hmm. So I would get two of my treatment at the hospital. And then I would come home and the visiting nurse 
would hook me up to what that has to run overnight. And when it came back, I, it was almost the same protocol, but they changed the medication to Avastin and mm-hmm. Avastin and was just a nightmare. I hated mm-hmm. that drug. All the drugs go bad. Um, I had to stop my chemo because my white count was so low at certain points. I had yeast um, um, because my body now, you know, you, you normally have these things in your body, but once your white count is low, your white count is not sliding these things anymore. So I had oral mm-hmm. trash in my mouth oh, because yes. of the yeast. I, um, my kids couldn't even come in the room because they had to wear masks, you know, because yes. my white count was so low. And that's something about black women in and of itself. We do have low white count to begin mm-hmm. with. So there's a period of time that I was taking, um, uh, Neupogen, um, which is a, uh, an injection to increase mm-hmm. my white count. Mm-hmm. Um, but in and of itself, it has other factors. At first I was taking it, these like five shots in my belly, but then I got this one shot that I would take right after my chemo, like the next day I would go to the hospital to get the shot. So yeah, there's fun times, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so yeah, so it was a 12 week regimen. In fact, when the doctor spoke to me and told me about my five year survival at that time, it was 53, five year, it was only 53% five year survival. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the, there was mass found when they did the staging, you know, when they do the laparotomy, they take, they do the, um, the hemocolectomy, they took mm-hmm. out the, my part of my bowel. And then the doctor told me that it was so low down that I may need to wear like a, a bag, a colostomy yeah. bag for the rest mm-hmm. of my life. It's, if it's, it's too low. If he could mm-hmm. anastomose the two ends together. So he was able to do that. So I was spare that, but, um, but then they did find a mouse, a mass outside of my abdomen, outside mm-hmm. of the, the colon. So that, yeah. um, so I was a stage three. And then when he told me, my oncologist then told me about the regimen, he said that they're doing a trial where they're putting patients either on 12 week or six weeks, because they think 12 week might be overkill. So mm-hmm. they're thinking six weeks might, might be better. Which one did I want? I said 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I was not going to be the guinea pig for six <laughs> weeks and then find out that six weeks is not good. Yeah. You can't do that. So I said 12 weeks. Well, with the 12 week, the cisplatinum, it causes a lot of neuropathy. So yes. till this day, I still have it in my fingers and my toes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm talking to you now and the pins and needles are going off and in mm-hmm. the cold weather, yes it's it's worse so I have always these thick socks that I walk around with in the house I have gloves in my kids car my whatever whenever I go out I make sure I have my gloves ready because that's that's a nightmare after I go through this 12 weeks and I had to interrupt a couple of times because my white count was so low Mm -hmm. after I go through this 12 weeks and I'm recovering the new day Later on, I meet this other doctor because I changed doctor a couple of times. When I did not agree with the doctors, I changed a yeah. couple of times. Okay. He said that the six weeks protocol now, they think that it works. Okay. He, he says that they're finding out that um, because of the, all the side effects and the neuropathy, yes. in six weeks, you don't really develop it as much, but 12 weeks, it gets really bad. So mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons that they wanted to see if the, you could get away with less um, treatment. And he says that 
it shows studies are sh had shown that six weeks is as effective as 12 weeks. And if you're not gonna get cured in six weeks, you probably would not have in 12 weeks anyway. Mm -hmm. um, just like we're, we're finding out with the variants, our cancers do mutate yes. and they change. Mm -hmm. And so um, they think that that's why, and this is another reason why they had to change my protocol uh, when, when I was diagnosed with a stage four two years later because mm -hmm. the tumor most likely mutated and they needed mm. to you know look at to see if there was any immunotherapy and everything else that they could give me in conjunction with the chemotherapy okay thank you for sharing that carlene and i can definitely relate to the neuropathy um it is horrible especially in the winter it and um it, it's like this sensation that it, I can't even describe it, but it just feels like your hands and your feet go numb. <laughs> and then you have pins and needle. Yes. And then sometimes at night you can't even sleep mm -hmm. because it's so bad. You can't even fall asleep. And when you first, when I first had it, you become unstable mm -hmm. because of the fact that you're not even knowing where the floor is. You know, if you close your eyes, you will fall down. Mm -hmm. you know, because that sensation now is lost. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, you know, it's so good to kind of explain it to people yeah. that has it. <laughs> that get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because so people don't get it. Yes. And you know, I don't know about you, but I can tell when it's about to start because the tips of my fingers get really white mm. and then it, it turns purple. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I can literally see it too when it's wow. when it's about to start. So besides the neuropathy, Carlene, how are you doing today? I am doing better. Thank you. Good. Thank you so much for asking. I appreciate that. Good. Because it's so important too for the audience to understand that, you know, once you get through the treatment, it's just a different type of thing you have to work through and manage. It, it just doesn't stop. It's just a different focus in a sense. And so I think that's one misconception that people have that have not experienced this is that, well, when the treatment stops, you'll be just fine. Exactly. Typically the treatment brings on something else. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's important. And thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And you know what, even just talking about it, I could not, when the treatment was over, mm -hmm. at least the first time, it was okay, let's close this chapter, let's move on. I didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want to talk about it. I, it was just such a hard thing to deal with mm -hmm. that, you know, my family was, everybody was depressed. When mm -hmm. I wrote, sat down to write my book and I included that, and it's more, it's a homeschooling book, but because homeschooling is not done in a vacuum, exactly. everything that I had to go through I had to write it in there so people could mm -hmm. kind of understand, especially those that are thinking of homeschooling that you, you're not, you're not, there's no substitute teacher. You're it. Right. You're going to be sad. You're going to be sick. You're going to be sad. You're going to, things happen, but school still goes on for your kids. Mm -hmm. And so that's the main reason I included it. But when I sat down to write it, I wrote it basically that chapter in one day mm -hmm. and I just pour my soul out things that I've never really talked about, not even with my husband. Mm -hmm. I just put everything in there. And then I cried afterwards. Yeah. I cried. And it was, 
it was so therapeutic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Writing it down was so therapeutic. And now I could talk about it because I've written it down. Yeah. But it wasn't easy for me to talk about it. And I would just tell people things like, oh, when I was sick or when I was ill, I would never even say the C word. Mm-hmm. You know, it was not a word that I wanted to articulate. You know, yeah. I was kind of still afraid of that word. I get it. You know, it's so interest- interesting that you say that because I didn't really talk about it either when I was going through it. I was just so focused on getting through the treatment because I kept telling myself, okay, if you get through the treatment, it'll be okay. I just need the treatment to work. And I just need to get through it. And I really didn't want to talk about it. But I would say probably about three years after mm-hmm. um, I was into survivorship is when I started talking about it a little bit more and what I had went through. And like you said, Carlene, it is very therapeutic when you're able to just get that out in yes. whatever form that feels good to you. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. So you want to know about my stage four? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I, I'm kind of like, wow, this is a lot. <laughs> I, think... I, I hope I don't get too technical with the viewers <laughs> out there because I don't want, I don't mean to be too technical. Um, okay, well, stage three, I fought the cancer, I won, I had a port, I had a access port by my neck so that they mm-hmm. could give me my infusion. Um, it just made it easier for everybody. It was right by my jugular vein, but it was sticking yeah. out and you could see it. And a lot of times I was really conscious of it. I didn't want people looking at me like, oh my God, I think she has cancer. What's this by her neck? Um, but once it was over, I finished on Mother's Day. That was oh, wow. that was when my last treatment was. So I was so it was spring, it was sunny, I was done. I went back to my doctor, now my oncologist, my chemo's over. I'm feeling great. I beat it, I survived it, and I could go on with my life. Mm-hmm. And so I asked them, asked them how soon could I get this thing in my neck out? You know, you know, yes. I don't want to wear it anymore. And he says, no, it's too soon to take it out because what happens if your cancer comes back? And I was like, no, that's not happening. My cancer is not coming back. I just defeated it. It's why would you say something like that? You know, I was like, how dare you even entertain that thought? It's not happening. He says, well, we usually like to keep it in for at least another year to make sure um, because, and then we'll keep it open by you coming in every six weeks. You still have to get your CT scans, you still have to get all these other things, your PET scan, your blood drawings, you know, monthly blood drawing, three months, every three months I had to get my PET scan and then I had to get my yearly colonoscopy. Mm -hmm. So he said, you're gonna be coming in for a lot of blood work anyway, we could get blood from your port because it'll be easier. And so I said, well, okay, for one year, I'll do it. You know, like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Exactly, but I wasn't happy about it. Well. While we're monitoring my labs, and this is one of the advice that I would definitely want to share with everybody out there, become an expert on your diagnosis, become an Mm -hmm. expert on your health, because no one is going to care more about your health than you. Mm -hmm. And, And when I did not agree with other things that doctors were saying, I said, Michael, I'm leaving this doctor. I'm finding another one. And I, yeah. you know, and I would write to other doctors. I would find a specialist in the field. I changed doctors three times because, Good. and a lot of times my brothers would tell me, 
you know what? If you didn't take things into your own hand, I don't know if you'll be here today. That's right. Yes. And so number one, read everything you can about it. Reach out to people that have had it, share the experiments. I went, so my CEA level that they were monitoring every month started increasing. CEA is a tumor marker, mm-hmm. uh, cosino, um, embryonic antigen. It's a tumor marker that could be used for a lot of other tumors. So it's mm-hmm. not specific, but in my case, um, before I had my cancer diagnosis, it was never, some people says theirs was in the thousands. Mine was like in the like fifties and normal is below five, okay. five nanogram per milliliter. So 50, 30 is really high. That's some high, people, yeah. Some people online says that theirs went like thousands. I, I don't know how that happened, but that's what they said. After my, after my surgery, it went down to like 27. And then after that, when I got on my chemo, it went really low and it went to like 0.1, 0.2, which is good. Wish I was ready. 1.2. Yeah. 1.2 is normally where it's 0.9 to 1.2, but it was always under five and it was always under 2.5. Well, um, I would go get my lab results and it started climbing. It was 1.8, 1.9, you know, 2.0. And um, I'm telling the doctor, why is this increasing? And he says, well, you're under 2.5. I wouldn't worry about it. It's not a big deal. I said, but why is it increasing? Exactly. You know, like what's going on? And then around that time, I was due for my PET scan and I had this really tiny lymph nodes that they saw in my lung, three oh, yes. millimeter that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it's there. And that was my other question. Why is it there? He goes, it's just, it looks like it's a lymph node. And that happens. I said, but it wasn't there before. Yes. <laughs> that along with this led me to believe something was going on. And so um, after it went up again, I contacted a pulmonologist. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to look at what's going on in my lungs. And um, sure enough, they, they did a, try to do a bronchoscopy where they would go through my throat and try to get a biopsy that way. And it was not done well. They couldn't get anything. So then they had to, by then, we kind of knew my can't, the, the CA just kept going higher. And yes. now this 0.3 millimeter was now 0. 0.6. It was, ex, it was getting bigger. bigger. And mm-hmm. so, um, I, I, this doctor opened my rib cage mm. to take out this mass, told me that the mass was out and my CA level should start decreasing. Um, it did not. It did not, it kept on increasing. And now to repeat another PET scan to see the size, PET scan is something that lights up when there's any inflammatory Mm -hmm. inflammation going on. Mm -hmm. So they tell you not to exercise or do things like that because that would cause you to light up even if there's no cancer. So because I just had surgery to repeat the PET scan, it would light up everywhere. It would be positive. So um, after a couple of months, um, they told me I should repeat the colonoscopy to see if the cancer is there because my CA was just increasing. It was going to five. And, um, wow. So I did a colonoscopy that was negative. By then I was really tired. I 
contacted Hopkins and mm -hmm. I told them my situation. I contacted Hopkins. I contacted months, um, um, another place in New York. I contacted Boston because I had family there. And if I had to get, you know, oh, sure. surgery, I could stay with them. So those were the mm -hmm. hospitals that I, I looked into, um, um, Mass General and Sloan Kettering. Yeah, those mm -hmm. were the others. And so I had to do another repeat bronchoscopy and the doctor did it. They did that right away. It's just a biopsy of the little lesion that they saw in my lungs. Mm -hmm. And um, by three days later, it was so fast. Um, they said, my cancer is back. It's in my lungs. Mm. By this time, it was pretty big in my right lower lobe that they were going to have to remove the whole lo right lower lobe. Oh, yeah. Wow. And so they had to, I had to have a chest tube and that was really painful, the surgery. I felt after a while, when you go through this, you just feel like, okay, another surgery at this point, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so that was, that was, and I was at Hopkins for a while. So my families and friends helped take care of my kids and my husband came to see me and everything else. So that was, but it wasn't even the surgery. The most painful part for me was going through this again, going mm -hmm. through this after I thought I defeated it. And at that time, my five-year survival was only 11%. Oh, wow. They gave me 36 months. Wow. That, 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 threw me over the edge. I was extremely depressed. I didn't want to talk to anyone. Um, you know, I, I think the hospital wanted me to talk to someone about, cause they know that I was depressed. And I said, mm -hmm. Is, are they going to take away my cancer? If you're mm -hmm. not going to take away my cancer, why am I going to talk to you? I have every right to be depressed. And I didn't want to talk to anyone. I really yeah. did. And I couldn't talk to my husband because I felt guilty. I'm doing this to them again. Yeah. You know, I'm putting them through this. We went through this two years ago and now we're doing it again and I'm going to die. And, and it was just, um, that was the most painful journey the second time around the, because I didn't think I would survive it. Oh, so wow. they put you me know, on, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, you know, I could see where that could be very difficult. Um, and that speaks to the fear that yeah. survivors have of recurrence. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know. I just never, I didn't put in my head that I could ever have cancer as much as I've seen it in patients. And I, I, you know, I went through the oncology ward, but me personally, I try to eat right, healthy jog, you know? And so that came as a shock to me. Okay. So we did it. We passed the, Let's close this chapter. Let's move on. The second time it came back, it was just I didn't see it coming. I, I get, I was caught off guard and you know me, I'm kind of a control freak, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I just felt I had no control of this anymore. I just felt I had to give up. So everybody tells me, of course, Colleen, don't give up. You could fight this, you could fight this. And you know what? At some point, I just didn't want to hear it anymore. I I was, the the, the reason the Avastin, definitely when that medication that I was on caused you to, to your vessels to break, mm -hmm. okay? Because it's now it's stage four. So it's circulating throughout my body. This is what stage four is. It's not located only in the colon anymore. It's everywhere. So because of that, your vascular system is now play a role. So this Avastin, what it does is that it could cause you to have bleeds. And yes. so 
I would wake up with nosebleeds a lot. And so I had to get to the hospital a couple of times to get them cauterized because of that. But I also had severe headaches and I could have an aneurysm, which is a bleed in your brain, a vessel that ruptures there. So the vessels in my nose were bleeding. So I thought it would be just a moment of time before the vessels in my brain Mm -hmm. um, burst open and then I would die. So every night I'm thinking, oh my God, oh my God, am I going to die tonight? Am I going to die in my sleep? Am I going to die tomorrow? I was on such a high alert of panic, of fear that finally I realized I couldn't live like that. And I have a quote and I have that quote in the book Mm. too. I don't know if you know, Stuart Scott. Yes. ESPN. 2014, this is when I had cancer too. And when he had that award and his speech was so beautiful he spoke to me and I could I read this again because I'm wondering if it's the one I love the quote I actually use but go ahead (laughs) when you die it does not mean you lose to cancer Mm -hmm. you beat cancer how you in in the way you live why you live and in the manner in which you live how you live Mm -hmm. in the why you live in the manner in which you live Mm -hmm. and I started really thinking about those words. And because of the fact that I had quit my profession to homeschool my kids, some of those years were some of the best years of my life. And if there was any silver lining, when people say, oh, you quit your job to homeschool your kid, that was the silver lining. Mm -hmm. Everybody always postponed things for when they retire. Oh, I'll have time with the kids when I retire. I'll have this. And then they die. They never have that chance. I had that chance. We had a lot of vacation time, a lot of laughter. It was just so beautiful that I said, yeah, you know what? I lived a good life. I'm happy with my life. I'm Mm -hmm. happy with what I was able to accomplish. And I love my kids so much. And I had that time with them. And maybe it's time for me to die and Mm -hmm. die with dignity. And only when I realized this, the fear was gone. My acceptance of this, um, I, I, I didn't feel weighed down anymore, Mm -hmm. you know? And so my brothers and sisters, they were not happy. Colleen, you can't quit. After six weeks, I had 12 weeks. So halfway I stopped. I couldn't Mm -hmm. live like that anymore. I was bald. The, Mm -hmm. The first time my hair got really thin, but I was never bald. The second time I was bald within a month, I was mm-hmm. bleeding. I had headaches. I was strobing up. I lost a lot of weight and I wasn't, I was never a big person to begin with. So I couldn't yeah. afford to lose weight. Yes. And I asked my husband, you know, um, is it okay if I stop, if mm-hmm. I'm going to die, I want to die with dignity. I don't want to die like this. I don't want my kids to remember me like this. Yeah. Um, and he said, sweetheart, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And mm. That was so, I needed to hear that. I really needed to hear that from him. And so once he said it was okay, um, I stopped. I stopped my chemo, my headache stopped, my nosebleed stopped. I went to the funeral parlor. I Mm -hmm. I arranged my cremation, you know, I got all the information. I thought about my death. I thought about, I want, I don't want anyone crying. I want yes. having fun and remembering all the wonderful time they had with me. And from that moment on, I said, I don't care if it's going to be a day, a week, a month. 
I'm going to live my best life. I don't want to die before I even die because that's what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And so I went to Hershey Park with my kids. We had (laughs) fun because I didn't know if that would be the last time. That's right. I started really living in the moment. And it was the first time, you know, I planned things 20 years down the line, you know, I'm going to go to medical school, I'm going to have five kids, you know. And I, at this point was the first time that I wasn't planning things. I was just letting it happen. And it was just beautiful. living. I was just living. I was mm-hmm. living my best life. Yeah. And once I did that, I lived. I actually lived. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Carlene, I am so happy to be talking with you today because just all the twists and turns that your story has taken And I really believe it was meant for us to connect because that is the very same quote that I use. Absolutely. That is the same quote that I use on different materials and things like that. And so that lets you know how powerful that is. That is. And like I was telling you beforehand, what you're doing is so important because just like when he did that, he saved me. Yeah. By hearing that really changed my ass, my look on my cancer, my whole view on it. And I started living again. Mm-hmm. And so in his death, he helped me live. Yeah. And so what you're doing, reaching out to people like that, you know, I think it's beautiful. Like I said, I Thank wish you. I knew about you beforehand you. because that is just so beautiful. I think people going through that need to hear that need to hear that they're not alone. And um, another of your podcasts about being superwoman, um, which is beautiful because we always feel that we are. And I think as black women, we have so much on our plate, you know, and, um, and again, with my five kids and my occupation and everything, I was the glue that hold hold their family together. And I'm thinking, what's going to happen if I'm gone? You know, I feel like I'm superwoman. I can't let people down. And sometimes you forget to care about yourself. Yes, so true. And that's one thing about cancer is that if you let it, Mm -hmm. if you sit with it and you let it, it really opens your eyes to a lot of things, quite frankly, that need to be changed. Yes. And it kind of shows you a different way. For example, with what you've shared with us, when you were going through your treatment and things like that, and you were homeschooling your children, that created an opportunity for you guys to get out and do stuff that maybe you wouldn't have normally done together, or, you know, you would have, wouldn't have had as much time to do those things. And so it just, if you let it, it can just reignite so much in your life and lead you to a path where you can change some things and get that quality of life that you really want. Exactly. And I always tell people, good or bad, whatever happens in life, and this is why in my book, it's really, it spans 20 years. Mm-hmm. And during that time, you know, the Haitian, the first Haitian earthquake occurred. Um, okay. um, um, Trayvon Martin was killed, mm-hmm. was murdered. Um, my cancer, uh, Tunisia, you know, a lot of these, we were, it affected us. Yeah. It, it affected the family, but you use these times as educational too, mm-hmm. you know, because to me, education is 
all around us. You yeah. never stop learning. And this is what I tell my kids. So whatever good or bad, we sit down, we talk about it. Mom has cancer. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about what you guys need to do. The colonoscopy, you, we believe that cancer um, is slow growing and it's mm -hmm. 10 years for, for black women, for black people though, it's faster, it's yeah. more aggressive and it's younger age. So right now, because I got my cancer at 49, my kids were supposed to get it at 39, but now I'm telling them that they might even try get the first colonoscopy at 35 mm -hmm. because we believe that it takes 10 years. And this is why if you get a clean bill of health from your colonoscopy, the doctor says, I'll see you again in 10 years. Because even if the next day you leave your colonoscopy and you get a cancer, we believe that it'll still it'll still be in the in your bowel in, in 10 years. Like it won't yeah. spread by then. It's a slow growing one. And that's an excellent point, Carlene. Now here's the thing. We know this because we've been through this. Right. Insurance companies, however, if you are not at that age, you can come in with every concern. And if you're not at that age, they, a lot of the times, won't cover the screenings. Yes. And that's the disparity now that we are trying to fix because of COVID has really highlighted the disparities between socioeconomic um, people and racial um, injustices that um, I think they're trying, they're now looking at all of these social determinants of why um, the health, there exists these disparities between races and between socioeconomic levels and they're trying to address it. And this is cancer, colon cancer have been increasing in, mm -hmm. um, in a lot of age group but mostly in black people. And so now the cancer screening used to be at 50. Now it's at 45. Now, because I carried that diagnosis at 49, I'm pretty sure that the health insurance will cover my kids at 39. Now you're right though. I want it earlier now, maybe at 35. And so that might be a problem. So these are things that we still have to work in, um, in the health department, you know, in health education and things have to change. And they're focusing on it, breast cancer. We, most of the cancers, except for skin cancer, black people are doing the worst. And we have the highest risk. Um, by the time it's diagnosed, it's, it's, it has spread. It's yeah. more aggressive. Um, and so for all those reasons, they are really um, trying to educate people because I think education is so important. They have these neighborhood communities that they're focusing on in, 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 in Black areas, trying to tell people why cancer screening is so important. Um, there's a lot of these different outreach programs now that they're doing. And also they found out that when uh, they looked at the racial difference in surgeries when a black person versus a white person have cancer, that a white person would most likely be offered surgery and you, they do not offer black people that same standard of care. And so now they're looking into that to make sure that that stops. So hopefully, hopefully in the coming years, this disparities that exist will, 
lesson. I don't know if it'll <laughs> ever be gone completely, but I'm really hoping that now that there's more talk about it in media, in, um, in medical school, um, I'm hoping that these discrepancies um, stop or change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what I found interesting, and all of those are great points. What I found interesting was that I think it was just last week or maybe the week before, the first time this brilliant young doctor created created illustrations for Black people in, in anatomy books. Yes. Did you see yes, that? Yes, I did and I'm see like, that. Wow. I did, I <laughs> Finally. Beautiful. <laughs> I thought that was beautiful. And I was looking at OB, of course, that's my feel. And even mm-hmm. the fetus yes, being delivered. Oh, that was so beautiful. Yeah. And, and I looked at it and I'm thinking, why didn't we see this before? Yeah. Like, why did we always accept? And this is how your mind, and this is how we de- play these tricks on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it's not self-loathing exactly, but it's like, we don't expect that, you know? I know and what you're so, saying. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thinking, why not? Why did it take now? Yeah. You know, like we never saw there was a problem before. Why did it take now? And it's so beautiful. So yeah. I saw that one too. And I loved it. <laughs> I said, let me ask her about this. She's a doctor. I'm sure she saw it. So, you know, um, before we wrap up, there's a couple more points I want to hit on. And just for people out there who, you know, COVID brought up a lot of different things. And there are a number of people who started homeschooling their children. And that opened their eyes to a lot of other things um, when it comes to disparities and things like that. Please tell us, Carlene, you know, why you decided to homeschool your kids. And then at a time, in your life that was so tough also how did you do it all well thank you for that question but let me just um try to rephrase it I started homeschooling my kids when they were little okay okay when I had cancer they were much older which helped and I I point that out in the book because I felt that if I had to get cancer now would be a good time because my kids were like teenagers but at the end of the book, and I, mm-hmm. I don't want to give it away, yeah. <laughs> I go back to that and I okay. really find that that was not the right answer. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of things in the book that I started in the beginning with one per, uh, uh, perception mm-hmm. and towards the end, I change it because as you grow and you learn, you realize that you were mistaken mm-hmm. at some of the things that you didn't think teenagers saw or did or needed their moms, you know? So, um, but I started homeschooling them and it was nothing that I planned. My husband and I were both physician. He's an mm-hmm. anesthesiologist and I was an OBGYN and my oldest daughter was extremely smart. And when I, and in first grade and everything, you know, she was reading by two, she was mm-hmm. playing chess by five. Um, and I had my kids um, right after each other. I had five on the five at one oh, point. Wow. So yeah, I knew that once I was finished with the crib, finished with the breastfeeding and the bottles and everything else, I would just give it away. <laughs> I I was I I told my doctor to burn and cut my tubes. I'm done. <laughs> one, I was done, but after two, my husband wants to stop at two. I wanted five. I came from mm-hmm. a big family. He came from a big family. I love my brothers and sisters to death, and I mm-hmm. always wanted that large family 
I just didn't know that I would be living in central Pennsylvania and I would not have any family to help me with these five kids. Wow. So it was very hard. Um, people calling in at the last minute, I have surgeries to do it. I, I would call my mom from Florida, mom, I need you. I need you. Mm -hmm. And then my, the, one of the babysitter injured my son, my middle son. Yeah. He, his face was like so swollen. I took him to the hospital mm -hmm. and that was it. My husband and I, we had said, that's, you know, we can't, one of us would have to quit our job. And that was very smart of him. When he said one of us, he never told yeah. me, Yeah. but I knew it was me. So mm -hmm. I, I quit my job thinking that I would go back in about 10 years or so when the kids are in middle school and we, you know, but then I get cancer. So um, that see. kind of stopped that. But that first, that first cancer stage three, my first week on, I was sick as a dog. Mm -hmm. Then my second week off, I would homeschool them. Two, two of the, one of them was in college. Two of them didn't want to go to school. Two of them went with, I put them in school because they wanted it. So the two of them that didn't want, we, I planned the work for them one week. And then we would go over the following week and we would be when I was better. And so mm -hmm. we did that for maybe around seven weeks or so until I was too sick. I couldn't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. But, um, but it, it was, and I think it helped because it kept me busy. It kept me focusing on things that I felt I needed to accomplish. It, 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 it didn't keep me focusing on myself. Mm -hmm. So, and, and, and then afterwards when they started kind of doing things on their own especially the second time around by then you know I had two in college by then and I just had the three little ones and um they were an autopilot I mm -hmm. kind of felt jealous <laughs> I <laughs> kind of felt I, I did I felt like I wasn't needed like oh, life is yes. going on without me everybody my husband's going to work my kids are going to school or they're staying at home and they're just doing their own thing either on the computer and I just felt is this what's going to happen after mom dies? Everybody mm. just does their own thing. But I didn't blame them because I was miserable to be around. I was mm. depressed. I was sad. They didn't know what to say around me. But mm. um, anyway, that's how we, so I, I homeschooled them early because of the fact that my son got injured. We didn't have babysitter, but also because they were so smart and they were black kids. And yeah. when I would have to talk to the principal and the, they would just say, I said, my daughter's already reading. She's already doing this. Can't you challenge her? Can't? And mm -hmm. no one was listening to me. So with everything, I just said, fine. That was the last straw. I took them out. I said that I'm taking out. And then my son, and this is something with black boys too. He didn't like just sitting in a classroom to being dictate, dictated to. <laughs> he loved walking around. And that made a, such a difference. He didn't want to go to school. He was five years old. And he was screaming, mom, I don't want to go to school. I don't want to go to school. And, you know, they're so smart. And so mm -hmm. I had to learn how to, um, how to work with each of their personality. Danielle could sit for hours and just read and play chess and everything else. My son needed something different, but mm -hmm. the schools were not accommodating me. And so, um, and so I spoke to someone before about my kid that it's from pressure makes diamond from homeschooling to the ivy leagues because they all ended up in the ivy league wow. and and i name it that not to congratulate myself so much but to show what we are capable of and mm -hmm. i don't like the achievement gap thing i always say the opportunity gap because my kids had the opportunity they had parents that were doctors they had they never had food insecurity 
-hmm. you know, they played instrument, they should have done well. You see what I mean? And I believe that all our kids could do well. Mm -hmm. And so this is why I don't, I didn't really want to say, well, look at me. I, my kids are all in, that wasn't the basis of the book. The basis of the book is, is for us to be proud of our kids, for us to be knowing how strong we are, how smart we are, how capable we are. And when you start homeschooling early on where society doesn't have a chance to tell your kids that black kids should only be basketball players, girls should not like math. My daughter loves math. You know, when your society doesn't have a chance to imprint on them all the negativeness on black kids, guess what? They do well. They do well. And so that was the point of it, of writing the book. I want to thank you for writing the book (laughs) and just everything that you've shared right there, in addition to everything else is very important also, especially with everything going on in the world right now. And we don't have to fit this stereotype. Exactly. And you made a point about your daughter, you know, loving math. And it's like, I can relate to that. And people automatically put a label on you. Oh, you're a nerd or you're this, you're that. No, I just like math. I just like science that, (laughs) you know, and so I want to thank you for sharing all of that. And I want to encourage people to read your book and where can they find your book, Carlene? Okay. Um, The title is Pressure Makes Diamonds from Homeschooling to the Ivy League uh, Parenting Story because it's basically our life, but Mm -hmm. there's so much involved in that. And you could go to my website, um, www.colleenkrepacore.com. And it has linked to either bookshop.org if you like to support local bookstores. And it has a link to the amazon.com. So you could find it at both places. And if Mm -hmm. you're in central Pennsylvania, like me, then I have some local shops that are carrying my books. I want to thank them, Webster's and 10,000 Villages. Wonderful. I love that. That's right. You got to support the small businesses. I love that too. Yes. Well, Carlene, before we wrap up here, um, there's two questions that I like to ask all my guests. And the first one is, what is something that you've learned in life that you would like to share with the audience? Reach out to others because you're not an island, you can't do it alone. And I think that I would have recuperated a lot faster if I allowed myself to reach out to other people or talk to other people. I felt like I could do it myself and I did, but it was a longer journey and I didn't think it had to be that. So reach out to others, especially people that have gone through this because you really need to connect. Sound advice, and I couldn't agree with you more. The other question is, what is next for you now? (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited to hear that. (laughs) Well, I just won my school board race. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm the first Black person on our school board. So the first, yeah. So it was a touch and go. It was a pretty difficult um, political run. And this is my first time in politics. So I had to give speeches and everything. And I had to go outside of my comfort zone. Um, I always tell people I'm shy by nature. I don't really like putting myself out there unless I have to. And I had to. And um, so 
now that I'm an author, now that I'm on the uh, on the school board, um, I don't know, the sky's the limit and I'm not gonna um, limit myself anymore yeah. because I think I, I, I think I spent like several years where I took a low profile because mm-hmm. I didn't know if the cancer was gonna come back. If I start something, will I be able to finish it? You know, I was really active in my community. Um, I was in charge of the swim team league. Um, I did other stuff. And then once I had cancer, I kind of just shut down, even though when I realized that, oh, wow, it's been a month, I'm still alive. It's been a year, I'm still alive. But that that feeling behind you is like, ah, it may still come back. I don't want to take that many chances, you know, mm-hmm. going to the zoo with my kids, playing around, having fun is one thing, but to be responsible of something like school board, I would have never done it a few mm-hmm. years ago. But then I realized, you know, I could walk across the street and die, you know, like, I can't limit myself like that anymore. And so I'm not. And so I did win my race. And so I'm just leaving the door open for different possibilities. I love that. And I am going to share your links uh, to your website and your social media in the listen notes so that people can go out and find out more about you and get your book. So thank Thank you, you Carlene. I should say, Dr. Carlene, I want to give you that honor. (laughs) And um, thank you for joining me and sharing all of your knowledge and wisdom with the audience. And thank you for what you do. I think it is so powerful. Thank you. Thank you. And before we leave, I'd like to give a shout out to the listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today. And that is it for this Wednesday. Until next time, let's keep navigating cancer together. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Navigating Cancer Together. I hope you enjoyed it. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you appreciate the show, drop a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. For notes from the show, visit ontheotherside.life and check out the podcast section. After you check out the show notes, head over to my gift shop and show yourself or someone special in your life some love with gifts of encouragement, hope, and positive affirmations. I would love it if you joined us for the next episode. Talk to you soon.